The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being with us today. We're continuing our study this morning of 1 John, and we're going to be looking at the second half of verse 8. We looked at the first half last week, and we're going to be talking about the devil's destruction. Now, this passage here in 1 John 3, 4-9 through 9, consists of two short parallel sections, each of which contains three things. Now, we looked at the first section two weeks ago, and last week we looked at point one in verse 8. The first one is a definition of sin. And we see that in verse 4 and then in verse 8. Verse 4 says sin is lawlessness. Verse 8 says sin is of the devil. Point 2, a statement about the purpose of Christ's work. Verse 5 says Christ came to take away sins. Today we're going to look at the second half of 8 that says Christ came to destroy the devil's works. And then 3, a statement about the implications of Christ's work for the Christian life. Verses 6 and 9. Uh, Verse 6 says, no one who abides in Christ sins. Verse 9 says, no one who is born of God sins. Now last week we looked at the first half of verse 8 that says, the one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now last week we discussed who or what is the devil, and we talked about what is the beginning from which the devil sinned from. When was that beginning? And we saw that at a point in time, Before he created the world, Yahweh created other gods, lesser gods, and angels to be part of his family, the divine council. Now, if you're not familiar with the divine council viewpoint, I would encourage you to go into our website. We have a section there in divine council, and you can come up to speed on that, because uh, I think it's important you understand that. See, the Hebrew Bible describes a divine council under the authority of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, while the Divine Council of Israel and its neighbors share significant features, the Divine Council of Israelite religion is distinct in many ways. Yahweh is a unique God, but He's not alone. Now, when you talk about the Divine Council, one of the arguments that comes up, one of the things people say is, well, what about the text like Isaiah 45.5 that says, I am Yahweh, there is no other besides me, There is no God. I equip you, though you need to know me. So that sounds like Yahweh saying, I'm it, there's no other gods, right? Well, I am Yahweh, there is no other, is an ancient biblical slogan slogan of incomparability of sovereignty, not exclusivity of existence. It was a way of saying that a certain authority was the most powerful compared to all other authorities. It didn't mean that there was no other authorities that existed. We see the same phrase used in Isaiah 47, 8. It says, Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasure, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. Here, the ruling power of Babylon is proudly proclaiming in her heart, I am and there is no one besides me. Now the power of Babylon is not saying that there's no other powers, there's no other cities that exist besides me. That's not what it's saying. But that she was the ruling power. 
Yahweh uses that phrase, I am Yahweh and there is no other, not to deny the existence of other gods, but to express His absolute sovereignty over them. Yahweh is God of gods and Lord of lords, Deuteronomy 10.17. Now, in the other pantheons of the different religions, the gods would fight with each other trying to you know, be the head god. And so there's all these battles going on. There, there's no battle going on in Yahweh's pantheon. Okay, I mean, in the sense that He is Yahweh, He's the ruler, that's it. Now, last week we saw that there are no passages in the Tanakh where the word Satan, Satan, refers to Yahweh's divine archenemy. We always think of that, that's who Satan is, but you don't get that in the Tanakh. We saw from the passages that we looked at in the Tanakh that the technical term Satan does not always apply to the same supernatural being, a single Satan. The term Satan, and it's Hasatan, the Satan, is attached to several different beings. We saw it was used to Yahweh, it's used of different men who were adversaries. It's used of different members of the divine council. They were adversaries. Now, we didn't look at this last week, but as we go through the Tanakh, we come across several names of other spirit beings. There are many gods and many satans. Um, for example, in Ezekiel 8.14, it says, Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of Yahweh, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Now, Ezekiel observed here, they got women performing the ritual of mourning for the deity Tammuz. These women are worshiping a Mesopotamian god, Tammuz, and they're worshiping him at Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem. They're breaking the very first commandment. All right? And Ezekiel is just a fascinating book. God is just furious with his people and what they're doing. And in chapter 11, Yahweh leaves the temple. The glory departs. He's done with them. And the glory does not come back until Yeshua shows up. He's the glory of God that returns the glory to the tabernacle. Now, there are at least, at least, there may be more, 24 pagan deities seen in the Tanakh. Some of them you, you read right over and you don't have a clue they're talking about a pagan deity. Some we're familiar with. Some are not so much. Gods such as Baal, the Canaanite deity, we see him in Jeremiah 2.8. The priest did not say, where is Yahweh? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. So here, they're going after this god, a false god, Baal. Now, how about Moloch? You're all probably familiar with Moloch, the god of Ammon. We see that in Leviticus 18.21. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch. And so profane the name of your God, I am Yahweh. The worship of Moloch often included child sacrifice. 2 Kings 23.10 indicates that the children were sacrificed to Moloch under King Manassas. I mean, it sounds pretty sick, you know, that they would actually sacrifice their children to this God. This God would, had His hands out like this and they would build fires underneath the, the hands and then throw the children into the hands and they would die. Now, as bad as that sounds, don't think we're, off, we're any better off because we're murdering babies like crazy in this country. For profit. The God we're serving here is the God of money. They're the God of convenience. So we kill children for convenience sake. 
Look at this text and see if you see a God in here. Isaiah 28, 14 through 15. Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, We have made a covenant with death and with Sheol. We have an agreement. With the overwhelming whip passes through it, we will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Where's the God there? We have made a covenant with death. Now, the word death here is the Hebrew word mavet, which is the ordinary Hebrew word for death, but it is also the proper name of a Canaanite underworld god. He was the god of Sheol. Sheol's the underworld, so this is the god of the underworld, Mat. He was the enemy of Baal in the Ugaritic epic. Now, the proper name, not the common noun, I think should be understood in this text. The Israelites, through their covenant with this Satan, this adversary of Yahweh, they thought this, this God would save them. So they have made a covenant with Mat, the God of the underworld, the God of death. Now, let me give you a, one more extreme example that I kind of mentioned last week in Proverbs 30, 15. I love this one. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. <laughs> I can kind of relate to that. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Now, do you see the demons in this text? Well, the Hebrew word here for leech is aluka. Now, this word only appears here in the Hebrew Bible. It's the only time you'll find aluka in the Bible. All right, and Strong's says this of aluka. Feminine passive participle of an unused root meaning to suck. Now, suck here means literal sucking, okay? Not like we use the word today. You know, that sucks. You know, people say something like that. It means that's no good or whatever. All right, that's not what they're talking about here. Literally, okay? Brown Driver Briggs says this of Aluka. Noun feminine, leech. Perhaps Aramaic loan word, vampire-like demon. Okay, vampire sucks blood, right? You get, you get that? Now... Aluka may simply mean leech, but since Aluka occurs in Arabic literature as the name of a vampire, this creature and her two daughters may be referring to a demon. It's, it's just weird to me that they would use a word that is used other places for vampires and stick that in there and not have any relation to vampires, all right? So, these are a few of the examples of the 24 gods or demons found throughout the Tanakh. So, what I want you to understand, there are many satans throughout adversaries that we see in the book. Now, we talked a little bit last week as we move into the intertestamental literature, or the Second Temple literature, which are the books written by the Jews between Malachi and the time of Yeshua, things begin to change. And in this literature, satan becomes to take on an evil persona. Now he's an enemy. Now he's fighting against God. We also see in this literature that there are many satans. The pseudepigraphal writings can give us insight into the Hebrew thinking and in some cases help us understand what we find in the Scripture. You know, there's a big battle. To you. you mentioned the pseudepigraphal and people say, oh, you're leaving the Scripture. You know, it's important that this is... We talk about context, right? It's not just the context of the chapter... And the book, it's the context it was written in. The culture. The environment. 
And the Jews who wrote the New Testament, their culture, they were very immersed in the pseudepigraphal writings. They quoted from these writings at times. They alluded to these writings. So they are very helpful, I think, to get the mindset of the Jews of the day. And that's one of the things you want to do. If you want to understand Scripture, you want to try to get into the mind of the Hebrews that wrote it. One of these writings is called the Book of Enoch. You're probably all familiar with Enoch. That's one of the more familiar ones. Ten fragments of the Book of Enoch have been found at Qumran in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's known to have existed in its present form since at least the 2nd century B.C. Now, the Book of Enoch, chapter 69, 4-12, lists five Satan. It's a rather lengthy passage, but it's worth the read. I want to show it to you just to get some idea of this literature and just to get some idea of these other gods and the damage that they're doing. All right? So this is Enoch 69. And these are the chiefs of their angels and their names, and their chief ones over hundreds, over fifties, and over tens. The name of the first, Jaquan. That is the one who led astray all the sons of God and brought them down to earth, and led them astray through the daughters of men. See, that's talking about Genesis chapter 6 right there, okay? And here we meet this Jaquan, who's one of these angels who's involved in this thing. It goes on, and the second was named Asbeel. He imparted to the holy sons of God evil counsel, and led them astray so that they defiled their bodies with the daughters of men. Again, Genesis 6. And the third was Gadriel. He it is who showed the children of men all the blows of death, and he led astray Eve. Now, we talked about that last week. This Gadriel is the one noted to lead Eve astray. We think of that as Satan, but here he's called Gadriel. He led Eve astray, and he showed the weapons of death to the sons of men, the shield and the coat of mail and the sword for battle, and all the weapons of death to the children of men. And from his hand they have proceeded against those who dwell on the earth from that day and forevermore. So here is this God teaching men battle, teaching men how to fight, teaching them instruments of war. All right, then we have, and the fourth was named Penamu. He taught the children of men the bitter and the sweet. He taught them all the secrets of their wisdom and he instructed mankind in writing with ink and paper, and thereby many sinned. Think about that for a minute. How did he get them to sin? Teaching them how to write stuff down. All right, here's, here's what I want you to get here. This society was an oral society. Okay? They passed things down through storytellers. They distrusted writing. You know, we are exactly the opposite of that culture. You know, if we're saying, well, someone said this, we trust that very little. But if it's written down, then we seem to trust it. They were exactly the opposite. If you said something, they trusted that. If you wrote it down, that was bad. And I just, this just kind of blows my mind that this is the sin. He's teaching them that right. He says, from eternity to eternity until this day, for men were not created for such a purpose. To give confirmation to their good faith with pen and ink. For men were created exactly like the angels. To the intent that they should continue pure and righteous. And death which destroys everything 
could not have taken hold of them, but through this, their knowledge, they are perishing. And through this power, it is consuming me. Interesting, huh? And the fifth was named Kastiha. This is who showed the children of men all the wicked smitings of spirits and demons and the smitings of the embryo in the womb. So here we got one of the gods teaching abortion. All right? Teaching the smitings in the womb. And we got plenty of ungodly people carrying on this today. That it may pass away in the smiting of the soul, the bites of the serpent, and the smitings. So here we have all these other gods. There were many enemies of Yahweh during this time. And here, these gods are coming down and they're corrupting mankind by teaching mankind things they weren't supposed to know. So there's a spiritual battle going on in the heavens between Yahweh and these other gods. Now, it seems as if this god, Satan, this watcher, known as Satan, has now turned against Yahweh and in the first century, he's ruling over Rome. He, be, he has become the God of Rome. And he's trying to destroy Yeshua and God's people. Now, Rome is ruling over Jerusalem, and here is this God ruling over Rome, and his intent is to wipe out the people of God. So this is who the devil is. He is one of the divine council. He's a watcher turned bad. He was a member of Yahweh's divine council, turned away from God, fallen, we talked last time about the timeline, and uh, I had some questions this week about the timeline. Let me say the timeline was my interpretation of that, okay? The Bible doesn't tell us when he sinned. It just says he does. I used some pseudepigrapher writings to try to support the idea that, you know, I think he sinned after Adam was created, before Adam fell. All right. Now, the second half of verse 8 talks about the destruction of Satan. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, the second half of this verse is parallel to what we already saw in 3.5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, I said that in 1 John 3, 4-9, it consists of two short parallel sections, each of which contains three things. In 8b, we see the second point, a statement about the purpose of Christ's work. Christ came, verse 5, to take away sin. In verse 8, He came to destroy the devil's work. Those are parallel. Taking away sin, destroying the devil's work. Alright? Now it says, the reason the Son of God appeared. This is the first time we see the term Son of God used in this letter. It's used six times after this, so we have a total of seven uses of Son of God in this letter. This title refers to Yeshua's divinity. His unique oneness with God the Father. Now, I think you're somewhat familiar with this, but in the Hellenistic religion, there was talk of divine sonship via human cohabitation with a god. That's Genesis 6 stuff, but you know, we're talking about this in Hellenistic writings also. In other words, the offspring would be a son of God. Caesar Augustus was alleged to have divine parentage as a result of his mother's impregnation by... A snake. Isn't that interesting? In the temple of Apollo. So he's a son of God, he thinks. Okay, I have a divine parent. I have a human parent. I'm a son of God. Now, in a religious setting where the gods were both numerous 
and essentially human in their characteristics, the notion of a human attaining some semblance of deity is not startling. Very different, though, is the idea of Yeshua's divine sonship. He is the one, He is the only. And we see that in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only. Some translations say only begotten. He gave His only Son. Only, or only begotten, is from the Greek word monogonase. And the use of only is important because only is only used five times in the New Testament. It's used of Christ as the Son of God. It's used this way only in the writings of Lazarus. He's the only one who uses this. Now last week, we saw that Job, we saw in Job about the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim. Remember the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh? These are divine beings. These are watchers, the members of the divine council. So how can Lazarus say five times that Yeshua is the only son? We've seen these other sons of God. How can He be the only divine son when they're around Scripture mentioned these other ones? Well, the answer is that only is an unfortunate and confusing translation, especially to modern ears. The translation only son seems to contradict the obvious statements in the Tanakh about other sons of God. And the translation only begotten implies that there was a time when the son didn't exist and that he had a beginning. None of that's true. Now in the book, The Unseen Realm, which you have, if you have not read that book, you need to get it and read it. It's a very good book. Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. Heiser writes this, the word monogonase doesn't mean only begotten in some sort of birthing sense. The confusion extends from an old misunderstanding of a root of the Greek word. For years, monogonase was taught to have derived from two Greek terms, monos, only, and ganao, to beget, or bear. Greek scholarship later discovered that the second part of the word monogonase does not come from the Greek verb ganao, but rather from the noun ganos, class or kind. The term literally means one of a kind or unique. So when it says only son, it is unique son without connotation of created origin. All right, one of a kind. So monogonase means one of a kind, unique. There's no other son of God who is like this son of God. He is utterly unique. Now this con- his conception by the Holy Spirit was without male human agency. His relationship to God is unparalleled because He has been with God and came from God. In a sense, like no other human ever was. He was sinless. We saw that in 3.5. There is no other Son of God who is a Son of God in the same way that Yeshua is the Son of God. Only this one. All other sons of God referred to in Scripture are either created or adopted. Not Him. It says the Son of God appeared. Now, verse 5 says that He appeared. He appeared in order to take away sin. Here He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Appeared is from the Greek word phanerao, which means to bring to light so as to make clear. Verse 5 and verse 8 are parallel and both use the term in the passive voice which speaks of Christ being truly revealed in His incarnation. That's what it's talking about here. The reason the Son of God became a man was incarnate, was for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil. During his earthly life and ministry, he revealed himself to his disciples and to the world. This was his purpose. Now, John 
gave us the reason why Yeshua came in 3.5. He appeared in order to take away sins. Now John, in this parallel passage, puts it this way, he might destroy the works of the devil. The word destroy here is luo. Strong says of luo, primary verb to loosen, literally or figuratively, to break up, to destroy, to dissolve. In the Gospel of John, this word is used both literally and figuratively. In John 1.27, it refers to a literal loosing of one's sandal thong. In John 2.19, it refers to the destruction of Yeshua's body. Look at 2.19. Yeshua answered, destroy this temple, and three days I'll raise it up. Now, this was understood by his hearers to mean what? The physical temple in Jerusalem. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about his body. So destroy here would mean death. In John 5.18, it refers to the breaking of the Sabbath. In John 7.23, the breaking of the law of Moses. In John 10.35, to the breaking of the Scriptures. The verb is again used literally in John 11.44 at the resurrection of Lazarus when Yeshua commands them to release him. Untie him. Take that stuff off. Get the grave clothes off him, which he was bound in. So loose him. Now he said the Son of God appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. All right, now let me ask you something here. And this is important. What are the works of the devil that Yeshua came to destroy? John said earlier that Christ appeared to take away sins, something he achieved by offering himself as an atoning sacrifice. He also said that Yeshua's blood, his death, cleanses us from all our sins. I think we can safely infer that through his atoning death, Yeshua dealt with the problem of human sin and in so doing destroyed the works of the devil. Now, it is my understanding that the works of the devil was to separate man from Yahweh. Do what? I still didn't hear you. Oh, yeah. Well, that's right. They, they, he wanted man to turn from God so God would judge man and he would be separated from him. We see this happen in Genesis 3, right? So let's look there. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You've seen the pictures in the books, right? you got some snake wrapped around a branch talking to some lady with no clothes on, right? I mean, that's, the, that's their picture of the garden, all right? What we see here is that it was a serpent who tempted them. But the serpent is not a snake. It is a divine being. It is a council member, not a member of the animal kingdom. This watcher, I think, chose to oppose Yahweh's plan for humanity by prompting humans to disobey so they'd either be killed by God or removed from the garden. Remember, they're brought into the garden. And we saw last week that the pseudepigraphal works say Adam was in the garden seven years before he sinned. So in the garden, we have Yahweh and the council members, and now we have man. And for some reason, this council member doesn't like man being in this, so he wants to get rid of him. All right? Well, the word serpent here is the Hebrew word nakash. All right? According to Hebrew scholar Michael Heiser, it is most likely a triple entente which is a word or phrase that has three different meanings at once. The root of Nakash is Nun Het Shin. Those are Hebrew letters. Which is the basis for a noun, a verb, and an adjective in Hebrew. 
So if you take Nakash as pointing to the noun, the word here means serpent. So that's a valid translation. But you have to keep in mind that serpent is not a member of the animal kingdom. That's not what he's referring to. If you were to take it as a verb, it would mean deceiver or diviner. That fits, doesn't it? So Nakash could imply a deceiver. That option fits the story well. As an adjective, it would mean bronze or shining one. So in our text, it is ha-nakash, with the shining one. And here's what we have to understand. Luminosity is a characteristic of a divine being. You see that all through the Scriptures, right? You see an angel, you see God, and it just luminosity, the brightness. You can't, you can't handle it. Luminosity is not a characteristic of an animal or a man. So this is a divine being. It's not an animal. It's not a man. Do you ever wonder why Eve would carry on a conversation with a snake? <laughs> I don't think she would, but listen. Would she talk to a divine being? Sure, if they've been in that garden for seven years and she's used to these divine beings, why would she not have a conversation with them? They were very familiar with divine beings. So I think what we have in Genesis is a divine being, not an animal. And I think this divine being was a throne room guardian, a seraph, a serpentine being. One who was part of the divine council in Eden. They decide to deceive humanity to get rid of them. To get humans kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Out of Yahweh's council. Out of His family. Why? Well, we don't really know, but it, the Scriptures seem to hint at pride or jealousy. We looked at some pseudepigraphic texts last week, the book of Adam and Eve, of why. You know, I think that they clearly indicate they were jealous, but I think the Scriptures indicate that also. There are parallels between Genesis 3, Isaiah 14, and Ezekiel 28. Now, the passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel are about an evil tyrant king. Ezekiel 28.12 says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. So he's talking to the king of Tyre, but here's what we have to understand. The pride of these kings is described in terms of an ancient story about a divine being who fell from paradise due to rebellion against Yahweh. So he's talking to the king, he's comparing it to an ancient story of another fall, another pride person who fell. And it's one of the divine council members. These accounts reference Eden directly in Ezekiel's case and indirectly in Isaiah's case. Now in Genesis 3, the Nakash, the serpentine shining one deceiver, was in the Garden of Eden, right? They're in the Garden. That's where he tempts man. Notice what Ezekiel says. You were in Eden. Do you think the king of Tyre was in Eden? No, I don't think so. All right, You were in Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, all these things. All right, now here's what you have to understand here. Every precious stone was your covering. These stones elsewhere in Scripture describe the brightness of Yahweh's throne. When you see these stones, they're picturing a throne room scene. So whoever this is talking about is in Yahweh's temple. They are in the throne room. This is the garden. This is the throne of God. That's what these stones represent. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Well, that's definitely not the king of Tyre. He wasn't a cherub. I placed you. 
You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. So here we have an anointed cherub. Anointed here is the word mashak, which means anointed, but it comes from a Semitic homonym to shine. So it could mean the shining cherub. Cherub and seraphim are the same in Assyria. It's a throne room guardian. Brown Driver Briggs' definition is an angelic being, a guardian of Eden. The cherub serpent figure is in the midst of the stones of fire. Again, this is divine counsel. This is a throne room scene. In this text, Eden is called a garden and a mountain. Son of man, rise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord Yahweh, you were in, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now again, Hebrew scholar Michael Heiser says, signet of perfection could mean serpent. Now in Semitic, at times the M at the end of a noun is silent. It's called the enclitic M. If that's the case here, what we have here is het, vav, tav, which would be serpent of perfection. That's interesting, huh? Isaiah 14, 12, we have this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. O day star, son of the dawn, is Hillel ben Shekhar, which means the shining one. And Lucifer is the Latin Vulgate translation of Hillel, which means a luminous being. So this is Satan in the garden, this this divine council members in the garden trying to get man kicked out of the garden. Isaiah 14, 13, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. The mount of assembly is the home of Yahweh. It's the place of the divine council. This divine being seeks to usurp authority over Yahweh. Now, we saw last week in Job 38 that the sons of God are described as stars. So here it says the stars of God, above the stars of God. So this being talked about in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 was in Eden. He's a member of the divine council. This being tempts man and man sins. He falls and is removed from Yahweh's presence. He's put out of the garden. That's what you have to understand. The garden is the presence of God. He's put out of the garden, which means he is now separated from God. This, I believe, is the devil's work. The devil's work is to separate man from God. Now, this is what happened. Man's outside now. He's separated from Yahweh. And God put swords up. Angels standing there. You're not getting back in here. That's why I said, you know, I said in the past, if you want to get the behind-the-scenes picture of this, read the book of Adam and Eve. Really interesting. I mean, you, you'll, it'll bring to your mind things you never thought of because it, it just shows the intense misery that Adam and Eve go through because they got kicked out of God's presence. They try to kill themselves and they can't. You know, they're trying all because they're so miserable because we were in the very presence of God and now we're outside. Well, after this happens, we have a promise from Yahweh, the proto evangelum in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. 
Now, Eve's seed is a human being. All right, this human being is going to come and they're going to fix what Adam did. A deliverer is going to come who will destroy the works of the devil. But until he comes, man is separated from the presence of Yahweh. Now, the fulfillment of this promise in Genesis 3.15 is what we see in our text. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The purpose of Yeshua's manifestation in time and flesh was to destroy, this is the aorist active subjunctive of luo, which means to loose, to unbind, to destroy. Yeshua did just that, listen, on Calvary. We saw that in 3.5. When Christ dies, He is perfectly innocent. In Him there's no sin. 1 John 3.5. His death is to bear the guilt and punishment of our sins, not His own. He didn't have any, so He couldn't pay for His own. He paid for ours. When our punishment falls on Him, it's taken away from us. That's what propitiation means. God is satisfied. That's so important that we understand that. Our sins aren't swept under the rug. They're not just, oh well, let it go. It's paid for by somebody else. Okay? Christ. He loved us enough to put forth His own Son to absorb His full wrath. To absorb the punishment we deserve. So that He could demonstrate that He's just and faithful in dealing with sin and merciful in dealing with sinners. That's the Gospel, people. This is our great salvation. Christ dying in our place and propitiating God. Removing His righteous anger from us. So in Him, there is now no condemnation. Katakrama is the word condemnation there. And it means separation. Death. Because it's a separation of death. There's no separation anymore because of Christ. Now the works of the devil to separate man from God have been destroyed. Like many things in the transition period, the already but not yet tension also relates to the destruction of the devil's works. The devil was defeated at the cross. All right, Psalm 82. You get down to the end of the psalm, it says, Arise, O God. And it's the word for resurrection. Arise, O God, defeat your enemies. <laughs> He's risen and His enemies were defeated. But we don't see that, which working out in the transition period, but at the second coming, it's completed. Like everything else in that transition period, we're moving. He's defeated at the cross, but He's still active in the world until the full consummation of the kingdom of God. Now, that's what most people think today, most futurists. He was defeated at Calvary. And when the Lord returns, that's it, He'll be done. But see, they got us still in the transition period, which is a a long, long transition. A couple thousand years of transition. Which don't fit what the Scriptures say at all. Because it said it would be soon, not thousands of years in the future. Alright? Now look what Paul told the Romans. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Yeshua, the Christ be with you. Now I want you to remember, I said, Satan at this time was the God of Rome. He's ruling over Rome. He's the evil divine council member behind Rome trying to destroy the Christians. The Greek word used here for crush, suntribo, it means to crush completely, to shatter, to break in pieces. When is Satan to be crushed? Well, it's at the second coming. 
And Paul said here to the Roman Christians that it would be shortly. So I guess that probably means soon, quickly, right? In their lifetime. You've got to remember audience relevance. And here's, okay, because of this, listen, I believe Satan is a defeated foe. I believe this because I believe in inspiration. The writer of Hebrews also agrees with 1 John here in Hebrews 2.14. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise partook of the same, the incarnation, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Power of death is separation. That is the devil. Now the Greek word for destroy here is katargeo. Means to render idle, useless, to cease, to destroy, to do away with. The word katargeo is used 44 times in the New Testament in 26 different verses. This verse it is translated loosed from the. It's also translated in Romans 7:2 as loose, loose from the law of Romans. It's made void. It's without effect. It's destroyed. Let me show you just a few of the uses of this word. 1 Corinthians 15:26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is what? Separation. That's done away with in Christ. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.10 And which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Yeshua, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Christ destroyed the works of the devil, which were death. Now, in commenting on this verse in Hebrews, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. One writer said this, Satan has been destroyed, but we are still tempted by him and must resist him. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. He's destroyed, but we're still dealing with him. I'm like, you must not, that word that must not mean what you think it means, okay? Destroyed. <laughs> has a, maybe a stronger connotation that you're thinking. Listen, if spiritual death is abolished, the work of the devil, do we still die spiritually as believers? No. If the law is taken away, are we still under it? No. If Satan is destroyed, does he still bother us? <laughs> Another commentator says this, is the devil destroyed? Do you think he has quit working? Well, most people quit working when they're destroyed. <laughs> most of them do, right? Now listen, he goes on, he says, if we mean by this eliminated, obviously the answer is no. He's destroyed, but he's not eliminated, okay? Bishop Pike said this about the devil. If there be such, he is still doing very well as anyone reading the daily papers can know. Oh, so that's where we get our theology from. The newspaper, right? No. Listen, we need to get our theology from the Bible. But that's where people end up today. They're like, oh, I still get tempted, and so there must be a devil out there. He's destroyed. His works are destroyed. Let me ask you, do you think Christ was a failure in His mission? I don't think so. But most Christians act like He was. They're all worried about the devil. I think we, some of us still want him around so we have someone to blame. You know? Many Christians have that flip-whistling mentality. You know, the devil made me do it. No, he did not. Okay? And it's amazing that he's, 
He's this is a divine being who's over Rome, yet he's always picking on you. <laughs> you must be pretty important, okay? Listen, according to my Bible, Satan is a defeated foe. Now you might ask, well, what about all the evil in the world? If Satan is destroyed, why do we still have so much sin? Why is there so much temptation? Well, James put it this way. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Listen, man is depraved. We battle with the flesh. We battle evil men with corrupt worldviews. We battle the effects of sin. But Yeshua, the Bible says, has conquered the devil. And this was completed when the old covenant came to an end. Because Satan was the god of this age, the Bible said. When that age ended, he's done. He's done. He's finished. All right? Hebrews 8.13 says, And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, that's the old covenant, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This was written near the end of the transition period. So he says it's growing old. It's still there, but it's growing old. It's becoming obsolete. And in 87, he became obsolete. This was probably written around 67 AD. The Old Covenant is still in effect, but it's fading away. It passed away in AD 70 in the destruction of the Jewish Temple, which was the symbol of that Old Covenant system. The destruction of Jerusalem is described as the passing away of heaven and earth. The new heavens and the new earth, the new covenant, in the new covenant, Satan's destroyed. He's not part of that new covenant. Look at Revelation 27 and 9. And when the thousand years were ended, the thousand years is the millennium, it's actually 40 years, okay? And uh, at the next conference, Bob's going to do a message on the thousand years, so you'll understand all that then, okay? So if you have a question, if you can't wait, call him. He'll, he'll tell you right now, all right? <laughs> Satan is going to be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They will march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So near the end of the transition period, the end of the last days, the devil's loosed. He stirs up the nations against Jerusalem. Verse 9 says they surrounded the beloved city. What city is that? Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is destroyed. Now notice the events that take place here. Satan is cast into the lake of fire. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire. And sulfur, where the beasts and false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. I have read from several preterists who write, telling how the devil is still functioning today. He's still deceiving. He's still tempting. He's still causing havoc. And I'm saying, okay, what is the lake of fire? I don't think it's literal, but it's speaking of something, right? What happens if you had a lake of fire and you threw something in it? It's gone. And I think that's what the text is trying to tell us here. The devil who deceived them, he was thrown in the lake of fire. He's, po- he's toast. He's gone. He's burned up. But they got Satan active, listen, from the lake of fire. He's being tormented day and night forever and ever. But while he's being tormented, he's also tormenting you. I'm sorry. I just don't get it. 
Okay? Some people are just hanging on to this devil. You know? His purpose was to separate man from God. In Christ, there is no separation. So he, he can do all he wants to. If he could do anything today, it would be useless because it's done. Once Christ died and was resurrected, see, Corinthians says, if the rulers had known, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. They thought they were getting rid of Christ and here what they're doing is fulfilling the plan of God and destroying themselves. It's over. The devil has no purpose. He's done. The old covenant is ended and so is he. Revelation 20.11 Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. The judgment takes place and death is also cast in the lake of fire that this heaven and earth are just fleeing from God's presence. The old covenant there. Revelation 20.12-15 And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne. And the books were open. Then another book was open which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. So when the Lord returned, the old covenant ended, Satan and death were destroyed, and the new covenant is fully consummated. Now watch 21. And I saw a new heaven, because the old one's gone, and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away. The old covenant's gone, we have a new covenant, and the sea was no more. The sea, to the Hebrew mindset, represented chaos. Alright? No more chaos. And I saw the holy city, Again, who's that? Jerusalem. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, all right, I want you to see this. I saw the holy city. This is the new Jerusalem. All right. Remember that God himself has told us that the new Jerusalem is the new covenant. Galatians chapter 4. He lays that out. All right. Satan was the God of that age. Old covenant age ended. When Christ returned, Satan is done. The text goes on, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is where we started, people, in Eden, right? Adam was with God in the Garden of Eden. Satan got him kicked out, got him separated from God. God put in a plan before eternity passed to redeem man after he had fallen, and he brings man back, and now, guess what? Man and God are dwelling together again. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. So the works of the devil, people, they're done. Because the works of the devil will separate man from God. And now, we're back in His presence. Through faith in Christ, there is no longer, there can never be any separation. Believer, you will never, ever, I don't care what you do, I don't care how hard you try, you will never commit the sin unto death. Because you can't be separated from Christ. It can't happen. Because this is what God did. This is God's plan. Yahweh now dwells with man. I wish we could fully appreciate that. We could fully understand that. We are in the new Jerusalem right now, people, which is the new covenant. 
What, what that means is we live in the presence of Yahweh. We have access to the throne of God 24-7. We don't have to go get our animal and head out to the temple so we can try to spend some time with God. We're always with Him. The sad thing is too often we ignore that presence. We're not practicing the presence of God, which is what we should be doing, realizing that He's always with us through every situation, through every trial, through every storm. He's there. We dwell with Him. We can talk to Him at any time about anything. No longer separate. So our text says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Believers, He did it. He did what He came to do. And we can never be separated from Yahweh. We can never die spiritually. We will live forever in the garden, on the mountain. Mountains are the dwelling place of God. Gardens are the dwelling place. We dwell with Him. And someday we'll leave this world and move into that realm, the glories of which we can't even begin to talk about. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, I thank You for the texts that tell us that You have defeated the devil. His works are destroyed. He cannot separate us from You ever again. Lord, I thank You for the security that we have in You. Security brings such joy to my heart, Lord. I stumble, I fall, I fail. But I never question my security. And I thank You that Your love goes beyond anything I could do. If you ever love me, you love me forever. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to me. Amen. Questions, comments? David. So, how does the works of the devil separate man from Yahweh? How are we supposed to understand that, I guess, in light of Yahweh's sovereign election of the people? <coughs> Because if He calls you, you will come. Absolutely. So how does that... Alright, the question, <laughs> I'm not sure I, I, I hear what you're saying. I don't know if I understand right. what you're saying. <laughs> I hear the words like, that are coming out of your like mouth. It's saying that if His works were to separate man from Yahweh, that He had some say-so in that. Right. Well, God has a say-so in everything. And see, that's the thing. God chose... He chose his elect before right. time ever began. And so although the Satan destroyed, he separated man from God, God had a plan to bring man back. And he would bring his elect back. There was a, an elect number, a number that God the Father had given to the Son as a love gift. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying it sounds like the devil had to say so because uh, his works were to separate well, the devil only does what the Lord, you know, right. gives him permission to do. We see that in Job, you know, you can do this and don't touch his body, and then later he comes back, okay, you can do this to his body. So God is sovereign over all things, and he's, you know, the devil is part of the plan. Right. And you know what? I'm just trying to work that out. In my yeah, mind it's now. it's beyond my pay grade, but you know, God, uh, you know, God, God planned for this. God, you know, people who are uh, super lapsarian, which I am. You know, they would say that Adam didn't sin, he was pushed. Right. <laughs> you know, God planned for Adam to sin. Yeah. All right, because he had a redeemer that was coming. And the Bible tells us Christ died before the foundation of the world. So this plan was already laid out. But man had to sin so we could see what it's like to be out of the presence of God, like Adam and Eve did. And then we could enjoy his presence. You know, I, I don't think we fully 
wrap our heads around it because we've never been an old covenant Israelite and had to take our animal and had to go through all the things that they did. You know, and God was separated. He was in the temple. He was in the Holy of Holies. And you couldn't get in that Holy of Holies. But now, free access. That would be mind-blowing to an Israelite. Free access to God. And it was mind-blowing to them when Christ came on the scene and was preaching this, you know. Anthony? So do you so do you think what do you think about this that okay he did the counseling stuff before he did certain things, okay? And so when man is trying to comprehend and to, to gather his mind, okay. Okay. Gather his mind, okay. So do you think God wants us to know everything? Okay, they want to let my creation, the people, man, know everything on planet was just a certain amount of things he just laid down and wanted us to do. In other words, do well, no, he didn't want us to know everything, everything. Right. but he used the prophets right. to tell us what he did want us to know. Right. And the thing about a prophet was a prophet had stood in the council of God. Okay, in other words, a prophet had insight into the divine council. God met with them. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I want you to tell my people. Mm-hmm. And so they would tell the people. But other than that, right. you know, God laid out his you know, his written plan, his moral plan, his moral will, here's what I want you to do, here's how I want you to live. But the divine plan, we, no, we, I can tell you what God's plan is for today, tomorrow. (laughs) That's all I can tell you. (laughs) Be nice to know things ahead of time, but I don't know, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I don't think God is powerful and, and, and all of that that he is, I personally don't think that he wants us to understand every single thing that he did. No, I don't think that's, he's, you know, he's God. Right. There's no way that we can can understand. I mean, we're struggling to know the things he wants us to know. (laughs) (laughs) David? So his plan to destroy the works of the devil and death and everything is only for the elect. Correct. Because Mm -hmm. not all men are saved. Correct. Yes, and many men will never know the, the privilege of being with God and being with Him. And a lot of people think that's unfair. You know, that God chooses some. If we got what was fair, yeah. we'd all be dead. What fair is we sin. We deserve death. Everybody deserves to die. So out of that, He chose to save some. Why? I don't know. I'm just really glad He chose me. You know, I mean, I know apart from him, I'd have never come. Neither would you. We can't come on our own. We're too proud. We're too stubborn. We're too, we're just separated. But God in his plan, you know, everyone was separated and God chose to bring some back and he chose to destroy the devil's works by the work of Christ. Dying on the cross. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is called the last Adam. Because Adam failed. The last Adam did not fail. He was obedient to God to the end in death. And then he rose from the dead. Yeah, read, read Psalm 82. It's, it's glorious. God's, you know, it's all about God's going to judge these gods. He's going to judge them and he's going to take away their immortality and they're going to die like men. And you get to the last verse, Arise, O God. That's ah, it's exciting. <laughs> Anybody else? We done?